Hello and welcome to Venturing in Climate, hosted by me, Henry Hamilton. Venturing in Climate shines a light on the entrepreneurs and investors tackling climate change. Today, we have Tom Miguelikadi joining us. Tom is the co-founder of Circa 5000, a venture-backed impacting investing platform. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. Great to have you here. Tom, it would be fantastic if we dive straight into to hearing about yourself and, and Circa 5000 and what it, what it does. Yeah, great. So I, um, Circa 5000 is an impact investment platform in the UK. We get people of all you know, uh, levels of investing experience to invest in listed businesses whose business models are trying to address some of the biggest challenges of our time across the themes of people and planet. They can invest for themselves, for their kids or for their pension. And that's the core product. Our goal really is, you know, in 10 years time to have pushed the entire investment management industry towards impact investing and make this way of investing the default way of doing things no longer a consideration, but just second nature. Prior to this, I spent eight, nine years in financial services, first half of my career at Barclays in the investment bank and the wealth management department. And then I spent four years at Wellington Management, where I met you. Uh, Indeed. <laughs> and working with uh, the Global Impact Fund to kind of get that off the ground. I was part of the team that, that started that with, with Eric Rice. And that was my introduction to impact investing. And then really became passionate alongside Matt, who's the co-founder of the business, about bringing that form of investing to, to people, no matter your kind of background, experience levels. We felt like it needed to be a consumer proposition. We felt like it needed to be a brand because of the feel-good factor. We felt like it could bring people to invest uh, that had never invested before because it meant something to them, because uh, they understood it. And I think in doing that, you can help change away uh, a generation invests and therefore how an industry operates by making that form of investing the default option to people that have never known anything else. And I think impact investing is unique in its ability to do that because of the stories it can tell, because of the way it speaks to people being completely different to your, your traditional kind of trading brokerage platform robo advisor and so that's the history that's how we came to this point that's what we do fantastic and what stage is circa 5000 at obviously we've had the the rename recently but uh it'd be great to hear what stage you're at so how much you've raised and how the business is going yes we've we've raised we've raised over 10 million pounds today over a couple of rounds we're about three years into our journey i think probably the next round we raise will probably technically be like a series b i would say although the the names of the rounds have kind of dropped in significance. Moving around, aren't they? <laughs> that's what it would be. We have about hundred and you know one hundred seventy thousand customers in the UK. Average age around about thirty one. Roughly gender neutral as a customer base. Eighty five percent of them based outside of London, and they invest around about on average about two thousand five hundred pounds per year. Retention is probably our best metric. They look like they uh, stay for about seven eight years is what the lifetimes look like at the moment. Extrapolating from the kind of retention. And that kind of ties in with the form of investing. You know, we offer ISAs, JISAs, pensions. These are longer-term investment accounts. And so the yeah. lifetimes are quite sticky. The core behavior is someone comes in and sets up a monthly recurring investment and, and half of the people do a, a lump top-up as well, like a one-off top-up. Yeah. And so that, if you look at that investment amount, you look at our cohorts and how they've evolved over time. You know, the first ever cohorts were investing 20 quid a month. And now people are investing 250, 300 pound a month. So as we brought more people on, the cohorts have invested more. And that kind of ties in with, well, first of all, trust the platform being around a little bit longer, but obviously the platform being way better in terms of functionality, what you can do, the accounts that you can have, what you can have, all the functionality in the product. 
And so as we've grown, the customer has grown with us, I would say. And now the target demographic is still very much younger people, millennials, but it's kind of broadened in its distribution, I would say. We, we do get some people that are perhaps younger than that, but we also get people that are older than that because I think the themes in which we invest are not confined to a generation, really. There's, there's people who want to invest this way across the generation. And so you see mm -hmm. that in how our customer base has evolved as, as we've got bigger. Interesting. You uh, you guessed my question around retention. That was going to be what something I asked. Obviously, you know, if you're like me and you check <laughs> your investment app loads multiple times a day, then it's about yeah. trying to encourage people to to maybe invest over the long term, I guess. And obviously, you yeah. don't really have that problem by the sound of it. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I'm not saying we don't have the, we don't have the problem. I think we compare. I think we're at the top decile for twenty for twelve month retention, top percentile for twenty for twenty four month retention. So, if you look at retention curves, if you're going to leave, you leave after the first sixty ninety days, then you just stay. It's going to look like we're always doing things to try and improve that, though. But I think, I think that our hypothesis coming into this was that the people would who would want to invest this way are doing it for financial return and other reasons. And I think the and other reasons bit helps on retention. I think it really does. Yeah. So. I, yeah. I, I think their retention is a, is a demonstration of that thing. And let's get this straight, Tom. You're a big believer in you can also make money by doing good things. There's no sacrifice of returns, right? Yeah, 100%. And I think if I hadn't have been able to prove that to myself while I was at Wellington, I probably wouldn't have done what I've done. But the fund that we were that we ran at Wellington was consistently performing exceptionally well. And I think the returns hypothesis that I've taken with me to this is if you invest in businesses that are providing a solution to a long-term structural shift in society and are using technology to scale that solution, then they offer the potential for outsized market returns. That's the overall, that's like the macro returns hypothesis. And I think that's yeah. proven out really over the past eight plus years. And I think the only reason I came to this was because I think you can at least earn market rate, if not return enhancing returns, if you do it in a certain way. And that's the ticket to making it scale in terms of a consumer proposition, because if you can offer people great financial returns and it's a great product and there's this feel good factor, then I think you can scale that. And I think that appeals broadly. You're no longer just trying to have an ethical based conversation because that only appeals to a tiny portion of people. You're having yeah. a, this is a better product conversation. And I think that's where some ethical businesses, sustainable businesses go wrong. They think they can just rely on the fact that it's sustainable to drive growth, but I don't think you can really um, past a certain point. So that's what I proved to myself in order to think that this could be a, you know, a scaled proposition. I think. Yeah. Well, it makes sense. Yeah, I'm also a big believer in that as well. So very much aligned. Can you just winding back a slightly, you obviously talked about working on that impact fund at, at Wellington and it'd be good to just know exactly what spawned the setting up of of circa 5,000 and what, what was it like, did you have a innate desire to be an entrepreneur as a child or what, what happened? Yeah, I would say definitely not what you just said. I had no, I had no, and I wouldn't really still call myself an entrepreneur if I'm totally honest. I don't think I fit that bill in many ways. I'll explain why. I think Matt, who's the other founder is a natural entrepreneur and he's a creative thinker, good problem solver, and he could think of solutions to many different problems. There's very few things I really passionately care about. And, but I would say for those things, I do it, whatever it took and I do whatever it takes to work in it and help and, and do, do X, Y, and Z impact investing became one of those things. And so that's why I don't really class myself traditionally as an entrepreneur, because 
I couldn't just work on anything. You know what I mean? I couldn't just think of any old idea for any old thing. Um, but when it comes to things I'm passionate about, I, you know, I'm very creative. I'm, I'm very committed. I'll do whatever it takes. And that's what Impact Investing is. So I think how we came to do this, backing up for a second, I think Matt and I met 11 years ago on the first day of the Barclays Graduate Scheme that we started on the, our first day together. We became initially very passionate together about financial inclusion. People we grew up with in the north of England not investing. The investment industry had been designed to exclude. That was a conversation we'd had very, very early on. And then I, you know, about three years in, had a crisis of mission, wanted to go and do something that was good for the world and joined Wellington really as a temporary stopgap to leave the industry altogether because Barclays was having one of its many scandals and it was going through one of its many restructuring, so I had to leave. And I joined Wellington, got introduced to Eric Rice very early on, the head of the Impact team, before he'd even launched the Impact Fund and volunteered my services to him after hearing what he was working on to help him build the fund. And then along that journey, Matt and I, became convinced that this was the right thing to do, B, that it was the future of the entire industry because we felt our friends really cared about this, and C, felt like you could build a consumer brand out of it because of the factor that you could attract people who didn't know anything about investing and get them to invest. And in doing so, that was good for financial inclusion. You could help them prepare for their long-term future, and you could do it in this way that changed the industry for the better as we saw it. And so that was the kind of the flow of how it went. We cared about financial inclusion. We cared about changing the industry for good. And we felt like this was the opportunity to bring them both together in a company and build a company. Now, I never set out to build a company. I never thought about it, really. But when Matt and I got our heads together, it seemed like the, the only option. I would say that the, the, the only thing that goes against that it was, is I was always a very disgruntled corporate employee. And I was exceptionally impatient. And I couldn't see a way of really enacting change within the organizations I was in. I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing. I'm just saying that was my mm. frustration. There's many, many good reasons why they don't let 26 year olds rip up and, and, uh, and rewrite <laughs> the policies of massive organizations. But I felt yeah. like the only way I could truly work for a company that did the things that I wanted to do was by starting one with Matt. So I think that my thinking about what I needed to do did change, did become more entrepreneurial but for the specific thing that I loved, not just for anything. Yeah, it makes sense. It's a good way of putting it that you don't have to really believe you're, you're an entrepreneur to, to set something up, right? No. It's about believing in that I vision. Think, I think there's like a little bit of fetishization of like entrepreneurialism. Totally agree. People make it out to be something that it's not. And also I think people think, well, I could never do that. But you, mm. first of all, you don't really know until you're doing it. And second of all, it's not, it's probably nothing like you think it is in a way. Yeah. Um, it's probably better in some ways and way worse in other ways than you think it is. You know, the reality of it is yeah. way different than the Instagram idea of it, I think. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think people, I had it in my head probably when I was younger. Well, that's not something I would do. But when you're in there, you're in the mix. You've got no choice but to make it work. And, and, and I think people will be surprised at how entrepreneurial they can be when they're in that environment. Mm, absolutely. Tom, it'd be really great to hear a bit more about the challenges that entrepreneurs such as yourself face. So I, I completely agree with you that entrepreneurs are being sort of glorified slightly in the, in the press. And actually maybe that, that masks how tough it can be. We've spoken about in the past about, you know, it could be dealing with VCs or hiring the best people, founding the team and adverse, you know, really extreme adversity. So it'd be great if you could talk me through some of the challenges you, you faced. Yeah. 
I've had to become the most stoic person in the world, basically, and with the thickest skin, because the day, every day is just a long list of rejections in some way or another, especially in the early days. Even now though, let's be honest, there's, you get people that when it's comes to funding VCs, you'll get mostly no's and you can't take those personally. And it's your job to kind of sit in the middle, never really engage too much in the highs, never really engage fully in the lows, just hear the reality of the situation and try and put your best foot forward, trying to make better decisions day after day and, and improve incrementally. Like marginal gains basically is how, you know, you learn to approach your job and your life effectively. I've had my time wasted a lot by investors, potential investors. I've learned to really cut that down and be much more honest with them, ask more, you know, forward questions, assess their appetite yep. in the first meeting and not really get dragged through a process with no end in sight. And then I would say the real, the hardest bit has been the people side of things. So I used to listen, before I started this, I used to listen to all the podcasts, all the VC podcasts, all the startup podcasts, and everyone would say people's the, be the hardest bit, people's the hardest bit. And I can never really understand why that was until mm. I was in it and I was hiring people, managing people. I never really managed anyone before. And you learn how highly valued quality employees are who come in, yep. get on with the work, are consistent, are reliable, they're dependable. It's just so rare, it seems, to find people who were who who like that. Now, to be honest, we have a team of 35 and, the, and we've got to a point where I can honestly say that they're brilliant now, but it's taken us a while to get there. And it's taken us a while to learn how to hire people, how to onboard people, how to manage people. And we've made every single mistake in the book on all of them, multiple times, sometimes. How do you now go about hiring, retaining and onboarding them? Yeah, I suppose the hiring, I've become a lot more, I've become better at asking questions and better at assessing what people are truly like. And there's a few little things that we do. What I'm trying to assess is determination, resilience, fight, work rate. All these things matter way more, in my opinion, than anything else. Because I like to find out times where things have gone. One of the questions I started asking recently is, Tell me about something that's gone extremely wrong at work and how you dealt with it. Now, you think that's an easy question on the surface, but the clue is in what they give as extremely wrong. That's where I want to, yep. that's what I'm hearing for. What is their version of extremely wrong? And if their yep. version of extremely wrong is, it's actually not that bad at all. I'm like, this person's never really been through anything and they'll wilt mm. under the pressure of the environment that, mm. that a startup has, basically any startup, not just us. So I'm looking to assess those things. And we've just started doing something called the unsell email, which is after the final interview, we send an email to the candidate listing the 10 reasons why they shouldn't take this job and why it's really hard. <laughs> and if you still accept, that is, a, that is a great sign because they're like, okay, yeah, I know. It's like, I know all the warts and all about this company now, yeah. about the role and about the environment. Yeah. And I'm still in. That's the, that's the kind of perfect employee. So there's, there's a little few tweaks on the hiring process. Then when they're in similar things, really, you know, upfront, honest, high frequency, working at speed. And then I think you can really assess people very, very quickly. And there's obviously the, you know, infamous Netflix, high fast, five fast. We've learned a lot, I think from that, but you can, you can normally within two or three months, I think really get a good working with someone every day, get a really good assessment of whether the, yeah were mutually suited to each other, basically. And you've got to trust that decision much earlier than it feels comfortable. I think the lessons that we've learned is that whenever you have that instinct in the senior team that someone's not going to work out, you've got to act on it, unfortunately. Yeah. In so many ways, it's hard. But 
all the times that we've delayed it and wished it would get better has only made it worse. So um, mm, we've learned that the hard way and now I think we've got much better at that. And so consequently, better at hiring, better at assessing people when they're in as creating a better team ultimately. And now you're a team of 35. I mean, that's a lot to manage. How do you manage all those people at high frequency with, you know, attention with so many of them? Yeah. Well, the key has been, thankfully, is to now we have our first like executive team, senior team with myself and Matt. So Fabio, who's our head of engineer, has been a fantastic hire. He's a fantastic manager. He's a fantastic developer of people. So he takes the engineers. There's a lot of people for him to manage. You know, we've got 12 engineers in the team, but he is their manager and he is their full-time manager. Um, and so that's a huge part. Um, Abba, who just joined us as chief marketing officer, CMO. She's obviously managing all marketing and comms and user acquisition. And so really in reality now, it's different than the beginning. Um, at the beginning, it was me trying to manage six engineers. Not, And I'm not technical, you know what I mean? So that was, can I swear on this podcast? That was a clusterfuck. Basically, <laughs> it was a nightmare, but it had to be a nightmare because there was no other way of doing it. But now we're a much more professional outfit with professional managers and senior people with the expertise in managing people. And so our job, myself and Matt, really, well, there's three component parts of our jobs, obviously strategy of the business, building the team, managing our, our kind of direct reports, of which there's much less now because it's just the senior people yeah. who heads up the team and obviously fundraising mm. and, and, and kind of media relations and, and external relations. So. It's now we have an exec team that's running the, the, the management of the team underneath. And that's what makes it much, much easier than now than it was at the beginning. At what point, Tom, does do you think, right, we're actually growing here. This is going really, really well. What point do you go, right, we need a exec management team? Now we have a proper, we have a proper board structure, we have a chair, we have a senior team. I've, not, I've never once felt that this was going well, by the way. I still wouldn't even classify as it as going well, if to be honest. What would, be, what would it be going well when you... I don't know. I spoke to a, I spoke to the CEO of a of a five billion market cap business. He's an English guy, but he's based in San Francisco. They're they're like a SaaS company, and he's the founder CEO. He's like fifteen years in, and he said to me, "Being a founder CEO of a company means that you are living in a state of perpetual terror, and that the only days that you can relax in your life is when you've either been fired by the board, you've IPO'd." or you've sold and you're no longer in the business. Those are the only three days you can relax. And the rest of the days feel like you're just in a state of terror in some respect, because your job is CEO, CEO, co-founders, you're dealing with the fires and you're dealing with the burning fires of the business. The strategy is set. You're managing the business to the strategy, but you've got senior people that are great at doing that day to day with their team. You're managing them. But generally speaking, you're dealing with the things that are not going well and you're trying to fix them and you're trying to propel the business into the future. So Matt and I are working on things that may only ever see the light of day in the second half of 2023, right? So we're trying to live here, but also deal with problems here today that need to be solved. And so it's tumultuous, basically. Yeah. But on the hiring of the team thing and hiring of the, the senior people, it gets to a point where it's just not sustainable. So like, say you've got 20 people in the team, but... They're all reporting into you, but you've got people in disciplines that you've no experience of as the domain expertise. You need proper people to manage, build, and help and, and help run that. So it becomes evident when you need somebody. And what we've always experienced yeah. is you're moving along, you're moving along, you're moving along. You're like, oh, crap, we need this person now. And that's how it feels. 
you know. So whenever you get to those points, you you know because you desperately need that person all of a sudden, and, and that's yeah. how we built the team. I, I would say. Yeah, fantastic. You touched on that point around the uncertainty and the, the sort of terror that you have day to day. How do you personally yeah. deal with that when times get tough? Obviously, founder mental health is a hugely important thing. It'd be good to know how you, 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 yeah. you deal with it. I think I'm very fortunate in the sense that I think I... So my, my, my girlfriend is a mental health nurse and and... I'm not going to say she's also my mental health nurse. What I'm going to say is that she, <laughs> yeah, she says, she says to me that I I think I naturally just deal with these things. Well, I think my parents are quite stoic, take things in your stride people. And, and I think luckily I fall quite, you know, I fall on that side of things. I think I do a lot of things that, that, that help. I play a lot of sport. I do a lot of exercise. I'm a person, thankfully, that's never struggled with my sleep. I sleep exceptionally well. I always have. I think I take after my dad on that. If, if you said to my dad, oh, we're going to bed now, he'd be like, okay, and he'd just put his head down and sleep for seven hours. I think I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of like that. Man. And so sleep well, I always exercise. I try and see my family and friends as much as possible. And at the weekends, I try not to work. The caveat to mm. that is Saturday mornings, I tend to have a lot of my clearest ideas for the business because my mind is like slowed down a little bit. There's a bit of quiet and a bit of space. And I tend to either go to the gym or go for a run and I fit solutions to problems come to me on Saturday on Saturday mornings often. So yeah. I'll jot them down. But I try not to bother anybody at the weekends and, and we try not to bother any you know, anybody else in the team. So I think I just keep healthy boundaries for work. I've become as the years have gone by in the past few years, I've become very aware when I need to stop work, when I when I'm no longer making good decisions because I'm tired, I'm mentally fatigued. I'm, I'm a morning person, I always have been. You know, after five o'clock, five thirty, I'm basically useless anyway. So I, tr I just try to do other things at that point and and, and and let my mind rest and know when I'm not going to make a good decision. I just don't make a decision at that point. It can it can wait till the morning yeah. often. So yeah, those things really I would say. But overall, I think I'm just fortunate that I I seem to be unaffected by a lot of things that happen. And I think it's got to an extreme point now where at the negative side of that is I've got so used to problems and dealing with problems that everything in my personal life feels trivial to a point. And I think that's a negative. Mm. So <laughs> I, I have to remind myself to engage in things on a personal level. Mm. I think that's a, that's a negative thing. I think. Well, it's, it's good, good to hear that you're naturally well disposed to, to this kind of ride, but I, I think it's a very important topic for founders and, and something that I think investors should also look at when they're, looking at businesses yeah. as well. But ultimately, I would say, I don't know if this is a popular or, you know, something you shouldn't say, but if your priority is your own mental health, that's fantastic. I'm not sure starting a company is the wisest idea, if I'm totally honest. Mm. In the same way that I would say, like, if your priority is, is becoming a three Michelin star chef, I'm not sure... No, sorry, if your priority is mental health, I'm not sure if you're trying to become a thing yeah. slash it's the same thing because you're going to be working all night in a high-pressure environment yeah. and people screaming at you. So I would say that yeah. I, 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 I would stand by that because I think it is a, it's, a, it's an environment which is going to test you mentally. Uh, you have to do everything you can to stay on a level, but there's going to be times where it's not on a level, I would say, because it's it's inevitable. Tom, obviously, you know, you're, you're an investor as well, so 
you obviously keep very up to date with the markets and the general macroeconomic environment at the same time as you're growing this venture yourself. How do you navigate what's happening in the wider macro space with growing your startup and, and what makes you, you know, confident that you can keep going? Mm. Yeah, great question. I think just say one thing before I talk about going to that. What I've been surprised about, obviously we come from a, you're now in venture capital, but we met in a listed capital markets mm. role, yeah. really, at Wellington. And uh, those kind of organizations, there's a lot of intellectual rigor around the data to make investment decisions because in listed markets, everyone has all of the data all the time. And so if you're going to get an edge, it really has to be something excellent that you've come up with. And that, and ever since I left that role, I've, I've had a newfound appreciation for listed markets investors who continually generate alpha. I think that is special yeah. because I think it's exceptionally hard to do over and over again. And what I've been so surprised about is before I came into this industry, I would have thought that VCs would be the most long-term thinking investors I could come across because of the very nature of what they're doing. They're investing in early stage businesses in the hope that in seven to 10 years time, they might be something, you know what I mean? So yep. really they're trying to predict, predict long lasting trends and long lasting, you know, consumer stories or business stories, whatever they want, whatever the, the niche is. But I found them some of the most short term reactionary people I've ever met, which is quite interesting. Mm, interesting. And, and there seems to be a lack of intellectual investment rigor around the decisions that they make. And so you've seen it recently with a lot of businesses that got pumped full of a lot of money during COVID, which we all knew was short was a short term thing now proved to be a short term thing. But these are meant to be the longest term investors. So I found that dynamic quite interesting to learn and it's given me a whole new appreciation for listed investments and the reason why i say that is because right now in the market in the venture market the message is again during like covid the world is ending the world is over hunker down for two or three years it's going to be horrible forever but if you look at what all the best listed equity markets investors are doing right now it's buying more and more because they know mm. they are truly long-term investors and the hypothesis is things will return to normality. So he was listening to the other day. I can't remember who it was, listed markets. He was like, the long-term structural trends of what was happening pre-pandemic are still true. Like they're still true. Not the, not the middle of the pandemic bubble stuff, but the stuff that was mm -hmm. happening before that was trending is still happening now. And so we're using this as an opportunity to buy into companies that we think are still long-term investments. It's very, very easy to whip yourself into a doom and gloom frenzy because everyone's yeah. saying it. I think that, that it's probably not as bad as people think it's going to be. Because if you look at inflationary time periods and recessions that follow, they're always much, much shorter than periods of where the stock market is going up. And so I think we're in one of those moments. And I think it, again, it will, it pays for people who can remain calm, stay true to the strategy. Our business isn't built on a short term COVID trend. It's built on a long term structural shift in consumer attitudes and the way an investment industry operates. This is the 10, 20, 30 year thing and beyond. And so, yes, in the moments like right now, it's a little bit harder for us as a business, but we should be a business that aspires to do well in whatever economic environment that we are in. And so I think mm. these are the environments which make us better um, operators, better, better entrepreneurs and create better businesses. Good to hear. Tom, we've spoken previously about impact investing frameworks, and I was wondering, Given your involvement with the Global Impact Investment Network, I was wondering whether you could just quickly talk about uh, the frameworks that you work on and you see 
and how that space is looking because it's quite opaque and there's a few yeah. different variations of the same thing. So good to hear how we can cut through that and get to one sort of framework. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, I think I think some standards are being shaken out now. So the the framework that we use the most in the background with a company that we work with on data is uh, a framework that's created from the impact management project. And so it's a five-step framework for assessing and measuring impact. And we use that with this with the company that we work with, Impact, which is I-M-P-A-K. We we produce a 27-page report on every company that we invest in and that we will invest in when we create our own ETFs, which is what we're doing, which will come out later this year. We're building our own ETFs from scratch using this data and this methodology. What that does is creates a, a net impact position of each company. So we take all the positives that they do, all the negatives that they do, and then we can create a, a ranking system using the impact management project and the data that spills out a ranking system across sector, across company. And so we can truly invest in what we think are the most impactful businesses for the world using the revenue and, and what they produce as a starting point, but then putting it through the impact management project five-step system. And so what we think we'll be producing when we launch these five ETFs later this year, the best-in-class impact products in the market, including active funds. So I know very, very okay. well how the active funds do it, but the various organizations that have good impact active funds, but I don't think any, any, any of them go anywhere near this level of detail per company. And I think over time, methodology like this will, will get shaken out as the ones to use, as the yeah. way to report it, the way to measure it. When's the big launch? <laughs> well, we'll be ready very, very soon. So the indices will be built and constructed imminently in the next couple of months. The time frame, in addition to that is a regulatory one. So we are beholden to the FCA and the Central Bank of Ireland to, okay. to get the products regulated and launched. So October is what I'm saying. And so I guess that means that you, those ETFs could be, you know, open to institutional investors as well. Absolutely correct. So the idea is that, so as far as we're aware, there'll be the first funds in the world seeded using retail investment flows. So by the customers in the app, and then they can sit on brokerage platforms or wealth management platforms around the world because they'll be the listed vehicles. We can list them in whatever country we want. The, the long-term idea is that, you know, pension funds are buying these products because they are, they are best in class impact products and they're more cost effective than, than active funds. So the idea is that, you know, the world's biggest pension funds will buy them eventually. Is that the genesis of the new name, Circa 5000? <laughs> well, the, the name really is, is intentionally slightly abstract, but the, the brand identity, the tone of voice and the name go hand in hand. And it's all about long-termism and thinking about the long-term and the future. Circa 5000 being the year 5000, you know, so what are we doing today that ensures our future all the way to the year 5000 and beyond, really? So hopefully these ETFs will be around in the year 5000 still. Absolutely. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, Tom, I'm conscious of time. This has been really fascinating, but I've got a few more sort of round up questions yeah. for you. One is, what is the biggest mistake you see founders make? Mm. Good question. The biggest mistake I see people make who, who are kind of coming into this is they want to be a founder. They want to be an entrepreneur, but they don't have the core idea of what they want to do. They almost want to be able to say they're a founder or want the, the perceived life of whatever that is. But Matt and I never thought like that. We saw a specific problem from a specific industry. And if we hadn't have been in that industry and hadn't seen that problem, we wouldn't have been able to build a business. And so we were wedded to this specific idea and passionate about it. You'll know when you find the idea. 
you know. So yeah. I got a lot of people come to me at university and asking for advice about becoming a founder and starting a company. My advice is go and get a job first. It really is. Because go and get a job, go into an industry, learn about that industry, do two industries, figure out a problem within that industry, go and solve that problem. I think that's that's still good advice for starting mm. a company. Very good. Thank you. And given you talked about, you know, your experience with VCs and, and things, so what do you think is the biggest mistake VCs make? <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of bad experiences with VCs. However, I've had some exceptionally good experiences too. And I say that Ada Ventures, who are one of the VCs that have backed us, another VC called Love Ventures. We have a bunch of VCs now in the capital that have been fantastic with us who you're a credit to the rest of the industry. The biggest mistake they make, I think the short-termism of dicking founders around is a huge mistake because you never know what a business can go on to do. And just from a human perspective, it's bad behavior. So yeah. I've spoke with, I'll give it a, a, a name drop, but we didn't, they didn't invest in us, but I've spoken with Andreessen Horowitz, right? A few times. They have been amongst the best in terms of communication, in terms of detail of feedback, things that they think we should work on, when they would and wouldn't invest, you know, what they would want to see. And yeah. they are one of the biggest names in the industry. And that's probably why because mm. they treat people well, they're, they're, they're very respectful. They didn't think they were bigger or better than us. They didn't, didn't think anything. They, 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 uh, it was a fantastic set of conversations that ultimately didn't lead to them investing in us, but they made it in the future. And if we get big enough to warrant yeah. the ticket size that they normally invest in, we'd contact them 100%. Yeah, very interesting. Thank you for that. Uh, I'm adding in more questions here because it's just <laughs> can't stop. But one really, one really quick one. So this is very hard to answer from your side, but... There are obviously challenges with an ESG. Mm. How should we relook at ESG to solve some of those challenges? Very hard question in sort of 15 yeah, seconds. Yeah, but... that's a good question. I think, look, I'm not a fan of ESG. I'm really not. Um, ever since I learned what it was, I was a little bit disappointed by it. So it, my knowledge of ESG predates my knowledge of impact investing, and I thought that ESG was the answer. Then I saw how it actually worked in practice, and I was like, this is bollocks. You know, this is not what I thought it was. I thought this was the solving the world thing, but it's not. It's like, let's invest in companies that we've always been invested in, but let's take a box saying we've looked at these three risk factors. That's basically what ESG is. So I think if ESG is going to be used and used, if used properly, in the sense that it's useful for the world and as a lens to look through, it needs to have a... ESG version two, which considers what the company actually does, the product and service it sells, the impact, but really that that's impact investing. So the, I think there's a Schroeder CEO a year or so ago said he thinks that the world will see ESG for what it is in the next few, few years and move straight to impact. And ESG just becomes like a component part of the mix of assessing a business. Because I'm not saying it's completely useless. I think that it's just not what people think it is. It's about assessing a company, whether a company is a good corporate citizen or not, and whether it's exposed to risk factors. In an ideal world, you still want to do that assessment too, but it's not saying that the company's producing something that will get us to a point of solving these big problems. So I think together, impact and ESG can be great if done properly, um, but ESG on its own is not is not going to get us to where we need to get to. So I think, I hope it just becomes a component part of the impact investing mix, and I think then it will be useful. Penultimate question. Go for it. Can you describe another climate tech startup you're really excited about? I'm going to plug a guy that I know here, and he is actually a shareholder and a guy I used to work with. So Will Rowe is the founder and CEO of Octopus Hydrogen, producing green hydrogen for the aviation and heavy duty vehicles industry. Will is a fantastic guy, very creative. I think if anyone can do it, he can. So I'm plugging them. 
Awesome. I'm sure we'll, we'll appreciate that. Last question. How do you keep up with the climate tech news? People, people tell me. <laughs> no, I, uh, <laughs> you know what? The, the reading I do more increasingly is actually nothing to do with what I do day to day. I use reading as an escapism. Still read mostly nonfiction, mm. but I feel like climate news, impact news, investing news just finds me. You know what I mean? I feel like <laughs> I, I have a few newsletters that I read all the time, whether they're financial, investing, or climate-related, all the usual stuff, really, nothing original. And I I know a lot of people in the industry, and we talk a lot. And so I I, I, I don't find it hard. In fact, sometimes I'm, I, I, what I try and do is not consume any of that for a while, just for change. That's good. Tom, for the last question, really, is for founders, investors, anyone interested in, in what you're doing, how can they get hold of you if they've got something specific that they want your help with or to ask you? Yeah, just drop me an email, tom at circa5000.com. I'm on my emails all day, apart from 10 p.m. to 5 p.m. <laughs> and not on a Saturday morning, please, folks. Not on a Saturday morning, but if you email me, I'll probably still respond, unfortunately, because that's why. <laughs> uh, yeah, email me. Well, Tom, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast, sharing so many useful insights. Well, I've certainly found it incredibly useful and interesting. Cool. So well, thank you. No, thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. Pleasure, Tom.